Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find nearly 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. My guest on today's podcast, April T., experienced a kind of nightmare that can only be described as the one that recovering alcoholics refer to when we say, There but for the grace of God go I. April's road trip of terror began while drunk and making a four-hour drive on a major interstate highway. Halfway into the trip, while drinking vodka from a plastic bottle, she crossed the median at over 90 miles an hour and crashed head-on into a car of three people, ejecting the driver. Injured and barely coherent, with a blood alcohol level four times the legal limit, April overheard the EMT's radio that the driver was dead at the scene. With death and destruction surrounding her, April's first thought was an alcoholic one. How can I get out of this? Though she had been in AA years earlier and had even been in treatment, her disease made her amnesic to the right thoughts about what to do. Thus began April's odyssey on the road of dire emotional, legal, financial, and psychological consequences of her drunken behavior. The tragic crash became the bottom from which April's sobriety finally emerged. And it was in prison that she found a spiritual awakening by working the AA program and being of service to other alcoholic women. She set up meetings and put full effort into every measure of sober living one can hope for while incarcerated. By the time she was paroled, April was truly a changed woman, thanks to AA. Today, as an active member of the program, she can be seen in meetings all over, sharing firsthand the agony of a story that, thank God, we can all benefit from without having to experience it. Attitudes about drunk driving vary, even among recovering alcoholics. Those of us whose stories include drunk driving often express gratitude to God for having escaped grievous and deadly outcomes of our drinking. And while many non-alcoholics would just as soon want someone like April put away for good, those of us recovering from alcoholism understand the true nature of this disease and how it wrecks lives. We also understand how sharing that experience can save lives. Personally, while I'm somewhat vexed and saddened by April's story, I am incredibly grateful that she has been sober since that fateful day. Knowing that she is sober and sharing her experience, strength, and hope with others, both inside and outside AA, gladdens my heartfelt outlook for the potential of healing from alcoholism one day at a time. So please enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes of AA Recovery Interviews as you listen to the inspiring words of my friend and AA sister, April T. I'm April. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, April. I'm so glad you could be on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me today. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun to do, and it's nice to know I've got a fan or two out there. And you're joining me from another major city in Texas, I believe. Uh, I'm outside of Dallas. I'm in a, a, a small community. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad that you were able to tune in today by Zoom. You and I have had the opportunity to share some in-person meetings together uh, recently. And 
one of our mutual friends who's also going to be on the podcast. Uh, he had suggested, and I think you and I had talked about the possibility of you being on the, the podcast as well to share your story, which is pretty extraordinary uh, when it comes to just the typical AA, get drunk, get sober, live life sort of thing. Um, your story has a tragic outcome, but it shows that people can get through whatever they need to get through and still stay sober. And so what I wondered is if we could start with what happened the last time you got drunk. The last time I got drunk was March 29th, 2019. Uh, my sobriety date is March 30th, 2019. So um, I had at this time become, I was 41 years old um, in 2019. Mm -hmm. I was a daily drinker. I drank by myself. I I had reached a point in my alcoholism where I was not being honest with people around me. I had been, um, I had done some recovery. I had been in and out of AA. I'd had sponsors. I'd um, been to treatment in Houston. And everyone around me really wanted me to be sober. So I was pretending to be sober. So I drank by myself and I, and I was being dishonest about it. And on that particular day, I just lost my job the day before mm -hmm. I was, um, I was just sick. I was, um, scared. I'd just broken up with a boyfriend. Um, mm -hmm. I was living by myself outside of Houston and, um, mm -hmm. I'd been fired from my job and I was just drinking vodka out of a plastic bottle by myself, uh, decided to make a little road trip to go see my parents in Dallas. And um, I took a little nap. I, I tried to sleep. I knew I was drunk and I tried to kind of sleep it off. And then I decided to go ahead and make the drive. Is this the sort of thing you had done before? Make make drives drunk? Oh yeah, yes. Um, you know, later in my alcoholism, I, I didn't have people to give me rides. I didn't have, you know, I was drinking by myself and um, mm. I was drinking at work, hence the reason I lost my job. Um, I was waking up in the morning and having a drink to, you know, calm my nerves or to, to be able to get through the day. So, um, yeah, driving drunk was, was something I did frequently. And, and I'd, I'd had some little fender benders and, you know, hitting, um, a guardrail and hitting a mailbox and, yeah. you know, the things that, that we drunks do. Um, but I hadn't had what I considered at that time to be real severe consequences. So it didn't bother you to at that point that day after you had lost your job, drank all that vodka, took a nap. It didn't phase you that day to get in the car and attempt to make the trip to your parents' house in Dallas. No, I was pretty arrogant about my ability to drive drunk. I thought I was pretty functional. I thought I was fooling people. Uh-huh. You know, I'd had people in when I was years prior when I was going to meetings in Houston, um, I had people, people who have been on your podcast, in fact, um, tell me you, you kind of, you smell like alcohol, you know, with, with love, they were telling me like, you're not done drinking and you're not fooling anybody. 
And I really kind of thought like, who is that person to, you know, come at me? And I I really um, kind of got my feelings hurt about it and thought that they had a problem with me, you know, and instead of just taking that um, as uh, the, the jig is up, you know. You decided to go back and and do it your way. Absolutely. You'd mentioned about taking the nap and feeling okay about getting in the car. Could you pick up from that point? Sure. So um, this was a four-hour drive from Houston to Dallas, and I had a water bottle that I carried around, a big water bottle that I filled with vodka. Mm Mm-hmm. And just, you know, kind of kept it in my purse. And that was that was a thing that I did frequently was have this little security blanket of vodka with me everywhere I went. And so that was in the car with me. And I made it about halfway. The halfway point um, in a little East Texas town is where I had an accident. And I was on I-45 and I just crossed the double white line and head on collided with another vehicle. Um, I was going mm. in the upper 90s miles per hour. My blood alcohol content was four times the legal limit. I, I collided with this car and my car spun off the road and um, I was bleeding, the airbag deployed, my glasses broke. I was in a ditch on the side of the road and um and knew knew this wasn't going to end well. Like I wasn't going to be able to just course correct and get back on the road and finish the trip. I mean, there were lights and sirens immediately and an EMT came over to the car mm-hmm. and asked, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a great memory of this, um, but ask some questions. Are you okay? What's your name? That sort of thing. And I was coherent enough to to answer a few questions and the EMT had a little shoulder radio or maybe he was a police officer or maybe he was an angel. I really don't know. Um, But I I heard through the radio fatality, the word fatality. Mm. And I was just like, oh, crap, you know, and still as an alcoholic and as just at the height of of selfishness and self-centeredness, I was just like, my life's about to change. And, you know, not thinking at all about there's a dead person a few feet from me, you know, Mm -hmm. who, who else was in the car? What happened to the, no, no thought of that other family. And, and I'm really, I'm really remorseful about that, that my first thought was myself and what's going to happen to me. Yeah. But that's that's what went through my head. And um, I called my mom while I was still in the car and I said, I've been in an accident. Um, I think I told her roughly where I was. Um, I, I I knew I was in the county, either from the person who'd come to extract me out of the vehicle or somehow I knew that. And she said, have you been drinking? And I said, no, ma'am. And that says a lot to me too, Howard, that I was, I was just, I was still just on this track of let's lie my way out of this. Let's, you know, let's make it somebody else's fault. Um, Mm -hmm. Do what you can to get out of this um, so you don't get in trouble. And um, I was just always putting myself first. Which is not surprising for an alcoholic, is it? 
that we think about ourselves first and uh, we put ourselves first. And here you are in a situation that is bad as it is, you're still just reacting like an, an alcoholic would. Yeah. How can I get out of this? You know, and and for the first time ever, you know, there was no um, fine I could pay or um escape I could make or person I could call that was going to fix it. You know, this was a permanent thing that I had done. Um, so I was taken to the hospital um, and that's where a DPS trooper came and, and took a blood sample. And a couple of hours had passed by the time he took the blood sample. So at that time, I was four times the legal limit. So who knows what it actually was at the hours time. Hours after? Yeah. Oh my. And, and that to me says, you know, we're walking around driving vehicles, pumping gas, going into convenience stores, you know, f functioning with air quotes. Um, mm -hmm. And we are so far, you know, when your body builds a, a little bit of a tolerance to alcohol, when you're drinking every day, like I was all day, every day, mm -hmm. steadily, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, a normal person wouldn't have been able to put one foot in front of the other. And that's kind of scary that, that I was able to um, consume that much alcohol and still even stand up, you know, much less operate a car. Yeah. What do you remember from the actual scene of the accident? Did, did they have to pry you out of your car or what do you remember seeing around the scene itself? Just just lights and sirens. And um, I don't remember seeing the other family or their vehicle. Um, I found out later they were driving a Jeep and it um, flipped and the driver mm. um, did not have a seatbelt on. And so he was extracted from the vehicle. And um, mm. I did not I did not see any of that. Um, I was taken by an ambulance to the hospital. There were two passengers in the car. So ultimately, I was charged with intoxication, manslaughter and intoxication assault for the injuries of the passenger. OK, so uh, intoxication, manslaughter to the driver who was ejected from the vehicle when it flipped mm -hmm. and he was not wearing a seatbelt. So the opportunity for his life to have been saved by an airbag or a seatbelt really was not there, was it? Right. He he died at the scene and, and they knew by mm. the time they came to get me out of the car that he mm -hmm. was deceased. So it happened pretty quickly. Um, and the passenger was his sister and there was a 12-year-old mm. girl in the back seat who was unscathed. So I was not charged with any crime related to the child. How old was the man who was driving the car? Uh, he was in his late 50s. Late 50s. So you're there before the ambulance takes you away. You're thinking, what's, what am I going to do? How's this going to affect me? You get to the hospital. At what point did it start to sink in that there was a fatality and you were facing some very, very serious events? Um. I remember wanting to get out of there, like, I'm fine, I'm okay, can I just go home with my parents? And I remember mm. just sort of already plotting my, like, um, how am I going to get out of this? And at some point, either someone told me or, like, you're you're going to go to jail. Like, like mm. this isn't, you're not going to get to go home. 
Um, and that, that scared me, but I was, I was in the hospital. I was, you know, in, in the early stages of this, I'm still drunk, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they were giving me medication. So I was in and out of sleep. Had you sustained an injury? I had a broken collarbone um, and my mm-hmm. collarbone still kind of, it, it didn't heal properly and still kind of sticks out of my neck a little bit funny. Mm. And um, cuts and bruises and you get burned when the airbag deploys, your skin is burned a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't remember being in physical pain. I remember being scared. And I don't even think the word prison had entered my mind at this point. It was, it was more like I'm going to have to spend a night in county jail kind of, kind of thoughts. Um, I hadn't thought mm-hmm. far ahead enough to, to what this actually, you know, there was no, uh, ultimately, um, when I started researching intoxication, manslaughter typically carries like a 10 to 20 year sentence and mm-hmm. no, no thoughts of that were in my mind yet. Had your parents arrived by this time? You were, you were in the hospital. My mother came with my aunt and they, um, they were worried about my, um, health and my physical well-being, And, and I don't know that they were, I don't know. I would have to ask them, I guess. But and and that's not something we talk about a whole lot these days. But um, I don't. I don't know at what point my baby's going to prison entered my mother's mind. But um, hmm. the fact that there were DPS troopers and there were police, I wasn't. I wasn't shackled to the bed or anything. But um, it it was known that a crime had been committed. Um, and that a man had died yeah. and I was drunk. So in reconstructing the actual accident itself, you had somehow driven over the divider into the lane of oncoming traffic. I guess so. My goodness. Wow. So how long did were you in the hospital for? I was there for five days. I, and there were doctors and you know everyone wanted to know my my medical history and there were a lot of questions about drug use and alcohol use and um and my mother was there in the room and I just answered as honestly as I could I mean I I did um at some point believe that the best um the best option for me was to go ahead and be honest and I said I'm an alcoholic I've been trying to quit for a long time. I haven't been mm-hmm. able to. I was drunk. Obviously, there's evidence to support that, but I'll I'll admit that. I mean, there was there was no getting out of like maybe this was, you know, a bad blood test or something. Like there there was no excuse I could make anymore. Yeah, I get that. So your mother this is the first time she hears you admitting to being an alcoholic a few days after you had just like totally lied to her on the phone about your uh not well maybe you maybe was it lying by omission that you didn't tell her that you were that you were drinking uh or was it just something that you always did I think that I was trying to um present myself I had I had gotten sober the first time in 2015 
um, mm, in, mm-hmm. in Florida. I'd been to a five-day detox. I was living in Florida at the time. I got out and I was drinking again within a couple of weeks. And mm. and about that time, I, um, I was going through a divorce. I got divorced and I moved back to Texas. I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. And I had been, um, I'd been messaging with an old friend who was our, our mutual friend, Blaine, who I've known mm-hmm. since, um, since we were in preschool, we went to, we were, we grew up together, we were kids together and, and we had connected and I told him that I had just been to this five day detox and, um, he was at an AA convention at this time that we talked in 2015 he said, you know, might you have a problem with alcohol? And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. And so I was drawn to his recovery. He had a lot of years sober at that time. Mm-hmm. And he started asking me questions, you know, like, what's your relationship with God like? And have you found anyone there that might be able to sponsor you? And he was kind of guiding me. And I really wanted to impress him. Mm-hmm. So got divorced. I, I'm I'm not sober at this point, but I'm pretending to be because I want to impress this guy. And my parents know that I've been to this detox, you know, and, and so I'm telling everyone I'm sober. Moved back to Texas, mm-hmm. was going to Houston on weekends to see Blaine and um, go to meetings. I got a great mm-hmm. sponsor there, Valerie. Mm-hmm. She's a, a, a well-known person in, in Houston recovery, and she um, helped me work some steps. But again, I was just sort of intermittently sober, but I didn't want to tell anybody that I was kind of sneaking a drink here and there. Now, this was in 2015. You were communicating with him by social media and phone when you first saw him in person but you were not necessarily staying sober, did he notice or did he say anything to you about it? Or were you actually dry when you were around him? I was mostly dry when I was around him because we were living separately and in different towns. I would I would kind of yeah. try to hold it together when I came to see him on the weekends. And eventually I got a job in Houston and moved to Houston and, and moved into his home. And in 2018, we were engaged to be married. And it was just my alcoholism was really progressing. I don't, I mean, that's a good question for him as to like when he knew. But there was, there was a time when, you know, I had my trusty little water bottle and I was living in his home and um, he smelled the water bottle and my behavior was a little erratic. I wasn't a violent person. I was more of a like, get drunk and pass out, you know? So I slept a lot. And um, he, in, in November of 2018, he, I say he kicked me out of the house. Mm-hmm. He, he confronted me and said, um, mm-hmm. I, I know you've been drinking. I know what's in the water bottle. And I need you to leave. Mm-hmm. And I was honest about it. I, I said, you're right. And, you know, I, I think I kind of pleaded with him a little bit to give me another chance. And he was done. Mm. He asked me to leave and I packed my things and stayed in a hotel for a few days and found an apartment. That was in November and the accident was in March. So that was in November of 18. The accident was in March 
of 19. We're still we're still a ways away from the pandemic at that point, right? About a year away. Is that right? Right. So Blaine and I were not in contact at the time of the accident. He had blocked my number. And wow. Yeah, we were not communicating. And um, Blaine, you know, he and I have been close for a number of years. I remember not knowing many details, but my guess is that he was just taking care of himself, uh, knowing him. I'm sure it wasn't done with any malice aforethought, but it was done for his sobriety. And if it helped you hit a bottom from which you could get the get AA and get the program, so be it. But uh, so he kicked you out. He blocked your number. If you had wanted to while you were in the hospital, you didn't you couldn't get in touch with him, could you? No. And and you're right. He he was, you know, he has a son um, who's a teenager now. I I drove with that child in my car. Mm. Yeah, he absolutely did the right thing. And and I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to tell him that, um, that, that ultimately we were able to make amends to each other. And he did unblock, you know, he said, he said, is there anything I can do to make it right? And I said, would you make me unblock my number? And, and God sort of intervened with that with that relationship and restored that relationship. But it took me getting honest and, and working some steps. But I appreciate what he did yeah. for me and what he did for himself. And that was based on some wise counsel from some other alcoholics um, who had been in, in similar situations. And, you know, he did that four months before the accident occurred. So I think at the time of the accident, when he heard about it, it was it was reported on the news a little bit. It was a drunk driving fatality. So would you mind taking us back to that fateful week, let's say, from the time the accident occurred? What was next? You you were at Bryan College Station and then you came back to Houston. I went back to Houston and cleaned out my apartment and moved in with my parents in the Dallas area. So you had a court appearance then coming up? I was in contact with with the sheriff's department, and we made arrangements for me to turn myself in. My parents drove me there, and I um, went to jail. And I did not know at that time if I would be in jail for years upon years, you know, if I would Mm. await my court appearance in jail and get sentenced and go to prison. Um, what, what ultimately happened is my parents were able to bond me out of jail. So I spent a few hours there, um, was released, went back to my parents' home. And and so I spent from, from March of 2019, about 15 months before I actually went to prison. So I had that time, I had a year a little over a year to get sober, uh, to work the steps, uh-huh. to await this felony indictment. And, um, and ju- it was during that time that COVID happened. So what did it feel like when your folks dropped you off at the sheriff's department for you to be put into jail? What were your feelings as, you, as they were closing that jail cell door on you? just sheer terror and panic and fear and Mm. you know i had at that time oh maybe a week or two sober um Mm -hmm. it wasn't immediately after i was released from the hospital there were a few days where i actually spent the night in my parents home so you hadn't had a drink since the day of the accident at that point 
hadn't had a drink since the day of the accident, but was was really scared and was was finally having to face myself and some consequences. And mm-hmm. um, I'm really grateful. I think that a lot of people in that position have a lot of suicidal thoughts and and just mm-hmm. go into a really dark place of I'm a useless human being. I did the worst thing anybody could ever do. Um, nobody wants to be around me. I'm hate, you know, I was getting messages. I, I ended up shutting off my social media, but I was getting messages calling me a murderer. I was, um, mm. just some hateful pe- people feel pretty strongly about drunk drivers. They do. And there it was out there, you know, and there was no hiding from it. And there was a, a mugshot that was on TV, you know, that, that, um, People who had thought that I was sober were, were seeing that mugshot. And um, mm. I just, I felt really, really lonely and scared. And a man came to see me in, in jail during that time period where I was just waiting to see if my parents were going to be able to put together the money to bomb me out. And a man came to see me from like a sober living for men mm-hmm. um, in that area. And he said, I have some experience with some personal experience with drug and alcohol use and abuse. And I help men get back on their feet mm-hmm. um, and you're going to be OK. And he asked if I could if he could pray with me. And I I was like, I'll take all the prayers I can get. Mm-hmm. And he made me feel like I had a shred of hope Hmm. and um, Hmm. I am really thankful that, that, that there's a guy who does stuff like that um, because I was not feeling, feeling great about myself in that moment. As time went on before your parents were able to bond you out, had you heard very much about or learned anything about the man who died at the scene or the other passengers in the car and I guess what was your reaction when you first learned of the details? I had um, I'd kind of done some Google searches and yeah, just kind of tried to piece together who was this person. I'd looked for an obituary. There also is a is a really selfish part of me that um, I didn't want to know what people were saying about me, mm-hmm. and I didn't. Um, I was scared of just the the. I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word hatred, but um, I, I was scared to see what people were, you know, what the comments were and, mm. you know, lock her up. She's a horrible person kind of stuff. Um, I didn't really want to read stuff like that. So I didn't, I didn't do a whole lot of that, but I knew who they were. I knew what their names were. I knew that the the sister of the man who died, who was in the passenger seat that night, um, worked in the courthouse. And, you know, immediately my thoughts were, I bet everyone there loves her and this is going to, this is going to hurt me. You know, they were Mm. a good family. They were, they are kind, you know, pillars of the community. And, and, and I don't know if, I mean, there's, there's so much of this story to tell, but one, one real blessing in that is that, um, I got to make direct amends to the family and oh, that's, that's beautiful. That is not something that is usually possible. Right now, today, I'm, I'm on parole and I um, and part of my conditions of parole is that I am not allowed to have contact with them. 
Mm. Um, so there was a day that I was at the courthouse signing papers and, you know, meeting with lawyers and entering a plea and that sort of stuff. And my attorney said, um, the family is here and they would like to meet with you. Mm. And I had an AA buddy, a friend of mine who was with me that day. And he said, Oh, like we need to, I, I need to prep you for this. And, and I was like, I'm good. I've, I've worked the steps. Mm-hmm. This is a blessing. This woman's name is, is on an index card in my big book. And I thought that I would have to file her under the never column. And she's here asking to meet with me. Hmm. You, you right. I'm going to meet with her. You know, that's, that's a gift. And, and this is 15 months after the accident when you went to court. It's um it's some months after the accident. It's several months after the accident. Okay. So tell me what that was like going to court for this whole thing and what transpired with the judge and the family being there, etc. I think still so in the interim of this 15 months I was going to my home group and I was going to meetings um once or twice a day. I was um sitting down with a sponsor every Saturday afternoon and working the steps. I didn't have a car or a driver's license. Um, I was doing some some freelance writing. Um, yeah. But I was just trying to stay busy and trying to just dive headfirst into a program of recovery. And I thought that maybe that would help me once I got to prison because I was going to prison, you know. At that time, did you acknowledge the fact that you were an alcoholic who needed to get sober because you wanted to get sober? Or was were you thinking of sobriety as the way out or the way to mitigate some of the harsh consequences? Probably a combination of both. Um, I had heard people say, you know, talk about this spiritual toolkit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I I want... I want to just be okay. I want Mm. to, I want to, I want to be able to, to sleep at night and I want to, I want to forgive myself and I want to, I don't want to live. I don't want to be an alcoholic, but I, I was not to the point of, um, you know, a friend of mine in my group said to me, just think, you know, when that prison van rolls up to the prison and you see all the razor wire and this, you know, dirty old prison, um, just think of all the women in there you can help. Hmm. And I thought that will be the last thing I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> but ironically in that moment when that happened, I thought there, there are some girls in here who are sick and suffering and yeah. I, I can share my experience with them and in a way that, that might resonate with them in a different way than if you or someone else is talking to them. Um, I've lived it. Yeah, you've lived it. And that's also the sort of thing that if you're working a good AA program will just naturally transpire. Going back to the court now, just for a minute, mm-hmm. when your case was called up before the judge. I entered a guilty plea for intoxication, manslaughter, intoxication, assault. Mm-hmm. So two two felonies um, that I was charged with. And I met with the family before all this actually went before a judge. So I met oh. with them just on, on kind of a random Tuesday. And I just happened to be at the courthouse and 
this woman worked at the courthouse and she had heard that I was there again, God intervened and, and we had that great moment. And bef- before that meeting, I had been offered um, 10 years to run concurrent, 10 years for each felony to run concurrently. So a 10 year sentence. And I, I sat down with them in that meeting and they were just, it was, it was the woman who was in the car and her sister. So these two sisters of the man who died mm-hmm. and, um, they forgave me instantly. They said, um, tell your story, help someone else. You know, um, they wanted me to, uh, they wanted me to do some time. They wanted me to, to be punished for what I did. Yeah. Um, but they also, they also understood that I was the, the, the woman, the passenger, um, has said publicly, you know, she's not a bad person. And, I don't know if I I love the characterization of, you know, we all make mistakes because it's bigger than a mistake. Yeah, that sounds too simple. Yeah, I get that. Yes. And it was it was such a reckless and selfish decision that I made and that I made often, you know, I I kept doing that. And I and it wasn't a one time like, oops, I screwed up. It was it was a decision. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So in looking back, do you, to what degree do you think they're being touched by your amends at that point, or at least your acknowledgement of what happened and your, your empathy for them? To what extent do you think that that softened the sentence itself? I think it had a lot to do with it. Um, the DA himself said that um, he changed the offer to five years after talking to them. And... There also, I didn't know this until I was locked up, but for a crime like that, it can be considered aggravated because a vehicle can be a deadly weapon. Mm-hmm. The DA or the judge or somebody can just check a box on a piece of paperwork and make that aggravated. And if it is aggravated, you serve half your sentence before you even get a chance at parole. Well, I had a five-year sentence, and I served only 19 months. Hmm. So I came up for parole immediately, almost, was denied my first parole, Mm -hmm. and then um, made the second one. That's amazing. Came home in January of this year. And the year that we're recording this is 2022. So talk to me a little bit about the experience of actually going into prison and what it was like. It was, again, just scary. Um, It was hot. It was, you know, 100 degrees in Texas and um, not air conditioned during COVID. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so everyone was wearing masks and inhumane. I mean, I mean, people are mistreated. And, and I did see a lot of certainly verbal abuse, certainly sexual abuse, um, fights, you know, people cutting each other with razor blades. And mm. but, but what I didn't see, and this is interesting, I did not see alcohol. Hmm. I did not. You know, and everyone says you can get drunk in prison. I saw I saw some abuse of um, prescription drugs. If people were making hooch, they weren't doing it around me. I did have the gift of being a little bit older and having a, a maturity level that people weren't, you know, trying to get me involved in bad behavior because I was sort of a little older and wiser. And I just I'm I'm not going to play with all that. But I hear that men's prisons are just um, rampant with gang activity. Um, that that was mm-hmm. really not my experience. So I'm really grateful. I don't I don't know what to um, compare it to because it just wasn't I mean, I, I wasn't tempted with alcohol. But I do remember sitting in my cell one night and I was upset and there was a girl who didn't like me and I thought she was going to beat me up. I mean, she had said as much and mm-hmm. she'd grabbed me by the throat in the day room one day and um, she just really wanted to fight me. And um, and I was scared. And, and I remember sitting in my cell and just kind of, you know, balled up and upset. And I, I said out loud, I just don't want to feel this way. Mm. And I thought, this is this is when alcoholics take a drink, you know? And I didn't have one. And um, I had a big book with me the whole time in county jail. I was able to take a big book uh, with me. And in prison, I was able to take a big book with me. Um, they let you take hmm. two books. And so I had one, and I, I tell this story a lot, but I'd, I'd heard that it was a program of attraction, not promotion. And so uh-huh. I stuck my big book spine out at the end of my bunk. And a, a girl asked me one day, again, during COVID, there's no volunteers coming in. There's no AA meetings right. in prison. There's no church services. There's no nothing. And a girl walked by my bunk and saw the book. And she said, where'd you get that? And I said, it's mine. I brought it with me. And she said, can I borrow it? And I was like, I'll do you one better. Let's have a meeting. And we sat down, the two of us, and we read how we said the serenity prayer. We read how it works. We read the nine <laughs> step promises. We um, wow. we shared with each other, and and little by little, people kind of stopped by and said, "What are y'all doing? Are y'all having a Bible study?" And we were like, "No, it's an AA meeting." <laughs> and and they would say, "Can can I join you?" And and it was such a it was such a beautiful. I mean. Um, we didn't hold hands and say this or uh, the uh, the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, but we we did have it. It was such an interesting mix of mm-hmm. you know women just looking different from each other and um, different backgrounds, different um, races, different sexual orientations, different um, you know socioeconomic backgrounds certainly and and we we became close friends and we um that meeting every dorm I moved to every prison I moved to I started up a meeting in the dorm and um I believe I've been told it still goes on today on Sunday afternoons at four o'clock 
your experience with AA to that point before you had to go to prison, the work that you had done gave you enough familiarity with the program to do that behind bars. That's an amazing, an amazing set of coincidences. Yeah. And I wanted those girls to, um, to have, you know, you see the women in meetings today out in the Mm -hmm. free, um, with the paper, with the paper they have to have signed, you know, Mm And I knew that some of those women were going to be required to go to AA meetings. And then I wanted them to have a comfort level with what those meetings look like. You know, I would tell them about crosstalk. We gave out little vanilla cookies from the commissary as as chips, you know, for milestones in sobriety. I made sure they knew what their sobriety date was mm-hmm. because I wanted, they, I knew they were going to have to go to meetings and I wanted them to be like, I've been going to meetings, you know, like I know how a meeting operates and I know that you're not supposed to interrupt someone when they're talking and that sort of thing. So it, it gave me some self-worth back a little bit. I don't even know if I want to say help some people because it helped me so much. Well, when we're of service out there, obviously, whether we're sponsoring or starting meetings, being of service ultimately helps ourselves first and then helps them in a secondary fashion. Uh, of the of the women who were coming to that meeting, had any of them any experience with AA like you did? Uh, did you find anybody that, that could assist you with the experience part of the meetings? There were a couple. The, the one girl that asked me about my, my book at the end of my bunk had been to AA, and she was there for, I think after you get your third DWI, it becomes a felony. Mm-hmm. So there are people who are incarcerated that just have a bunch of DWIs and... Um, were there any other women who were in there for vehicular manslaughter or similar charges? Yes, and most of them, well, all of them, everyone that I that I recall that I knew with that charge had more time than I did. So mm. that gets a little tricky too, like you think you're better than us cuz you only got 5 years. And you know when you make parole, you don't want to um it it wasn't anything special that I did. It's just, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to it sometimes, but a lot of these girls have eight years or 10 years. Some of them it's aggravated. So they, they haven't ever even been to see parole, you know, and they've been locked up three or four years already. So to what extent did your participation in starting those meetings and participating in Alcoholics Anonymous, to what extent did that come up in the parole hearings and how did it affect those particular hearings? I think it was, um, I think it was a pretty big deal. My, my attorney wanted documentation of that and really used that as, as something that stood out about me. And mm-hmm. something that showed that I was gonna, I was gonna live in this way whether I got to go home or not. I was mm-hmm. going to make the most of this prison experience and recover and carry the message to other alcoholics. Mm-hmm. However, you know, you mentioned a while back, like, you know, were you doing this so you could get out of jail free, so to speak, or mm-hmm. were you doing this because you wanted to to get well and you wanted to recover from alcoholism? And I think at some point, just even without my knowledge, it transitioned from that selfish, how can I get out of this to, you know, I laughed a lot in prison. It really brought mm-hmm. me joy to 
to share my experience with these women. I cried a lot in there too, but... Um, Would you consider that spiritual awakening and that turning point from doing that to get out of it till doing it because it was the right thing to do? Absolutely. And I, and I developed a relationship with God in prison. And even that feels kind of funny to say because it just sounds like this like hokey jailhouse conversion sort of thing of mm -hmm. like everybody believes in God when they're locked up, you know? Yeah. I, I heard some people, I went to a, a Northeast Texas corrections conference yesterday and I heard people say that they would go to AA meetings um, because it was air conditioned. And that, that was the only reason that they went to get out of their hot dorms, you know? So, but I think the book says, you know, we, we came to scoff and we stayed to pray or something like that. And I think, I think I started out sort of with selfish, purely selfish motives. And yeah, something happened over the course of, of that 19 months that I was incarcerated that was just like, I'm going to do this because this life feels a lot better than, than my best day drunk, you know? Yeah, that's pretty true. And we've all heard today what your worst day drunk was. Yes. Very few people I know can point to that kind of worst day, and no one should have to go through that. But the fact that you did and are still around to tell the story, especially the part of the story that involves you staying sober in prison and starting AA in prison, were women sponsoring other women? Was there any of that traditional kind of AA going on, or were these just mostly meetings? Meetings. I attempted it. You know, I had a couple people ask me to sponsor them and I heard a few fifth steps and uh -huh. I showed them how to how I had written my inventory. Yeah. Everybody wants to make amends because they want their they want their relationships restored, you know? Yeah. I, I really cautioned them about, you know, firing off a letter and that that for me there was um that was a process that I, I needed a lot of guidance from a sponsor who had who had worked the steps and had made amends and um, had some experience in that. And, and Were you in touch with a sponsor on the outside during this time? Yes. Did you yourself have a sponsor you were working with? I did. I talked to her on the phone on Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say every Saturday, but often. And I tried to do some inventory and some um, like writing letters, you know, and doing that through the mail. That really was not, um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's something really beautiful about being face to face with a person and oh, yeah. sitting down with an open book in front of you and reading those first 164 pages. And we read a lot of the stories in the back, too. And there's a lot of um, wisdom in, in those little vignettes in the back of the book um, from people who have been to prison, you know? We big book nerds kinda kinda miss the good stuff that's back there sometimes um, that's really relatable. Yeah, especially those stories that, there are a number of stories also in the first and second edition that most people have never seen. I I did a an audio book called Lost Stories of the Big Book, which has the 30 stories from the first and second edition that never made it to the third and fourth edition. And a lot of those stories that people who got sober after 76 and started using the third and fourth edition, a lot of people have never heard those stories. And a lot of them do have prison and jail in them. 
And yeah. uh, it, it can't be overlooked. It's one of the things that we say is the ultimate outcome, jails, death, or institutions. And right. so you've had the jails part of it as part of your experience. One of the things I found, too, is some of the people who, like one of my friends who was in, on the interview back when I first started, he was in prison for 34 years in his life, but the, the most recent sentence that he served was a 20-year sentence. And now he's out, I don't know, 10, 12 years, and he's very active in the correctional facility meetings that bring AA back into the prisons. Have you gotten involved with that, and what's been your experience? You mentioned the correctional committee earlier. Yeah, I um, I am not permitted to go into a TDCJ facility um, until I've been home for a year. Okay. So my year comes up in a few months. I've mm. done the um, I've done the training for that. They're really big on, you know, they don't love for you to have a relationship with a person who is in prison yeah. and you go in. Um, so if you have a relative, for example, or a close friend and and that's tricky because I've I've got a lot of friends in prison that I write letters to and of course all those letters are tracked and most of them yeah. these days are electronic and you know one of the things that came up in the training was it said don't send any inmates pictures of you and your family and you know that that establishes a relationship and I was like oh Oops, <laughs> you know, um, but most county jails will will take just about anybody who's willing to bring a meeting. I did. I was asked by the sheriff to um, come meet with the women in the county jail where I was. Yes, where my accident occurred. What was that like? Um, I think there were four women um, who were there that day. I really it wasn't an AA meeting. It wasn't me telling my story from a podium. I just um they locked us in a library and um I was afraid they weren't going to let me out. Um <laughs> it it is still a little nerve-wracking to be in a jail, but um I'll bet. But I just I just shared with them. I talked with them. I answered questions. Um there was one young lady who um who felt sure that she was about to go to prison. She hadn't had her court appearance yet. And I write to those girls. I I share with anyone who will listen that there's there's hope. And and I do want to say um, a lot of the women from Houston AA who who were helpful to me during that period of time where I was where Blaine and I were engaged and I was you know kind of trying to fake it till I made it. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of those women wrote to me, um, former sponsors, you know friends and people I didn't, people I'd never met before would say, you know, I got your address from that women's meeting um, on Saturday mornings. And mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to, to let you know, you helped keep me sober today. And that, that was just everything that was so encouraging to me to, to hear from other alcoholics while I was locked up. That's the love of the program and in active service to uh, fellow alcoholics. And I, I love that the women all came together to express their concern and love and support of you during that entire time. Uh, and your, how long is your uh, parole? I will be on parole until 2025. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be the full part of your sentence then. Correct. Now, now that you're on parole, there are certain limitations to what you can and can't do, uh, but you're free to go to as many meetings as you want, I would expect. 
free to go to as many meetings as I want. Um, many of the other women I've talked to who are out on parole are required to go to a couple of meetings a week. Mm-hmm. My parole officer doesn't have me carry around a paper and I do have a device in my car that um, I can't, the car won't start. If I um, have been drinking, I blow into a breathalyzer to start the car, but I am permitted to drive. I have a driver's license. There are a lot of those cars in AA club parking lots these days. And thank God for them, because if nothing else, if somebody's going to slip, at least they can't start their car to drive around while they're drunk. Yeah, I actually, it. I feel like it gives other people some peace of mind. Oh, yeah. You know, when I tell people that I'm driving, but I've, I've got this device in the car, I feel like it, it helps them feel more comfortable and whatever it takes, you know, I've been very fortunate. You know, I didn't have people protesting my release. I didn't have a whole lot of backlash about being back home. Um, I'm employed. I write for a real estate newsletter. Mm-hmm. They knew the deal when I went in. They wrote to me when I was in prison and they hired me full time when I got out. What gifts? Yes, yes. And I mean, you can Google my name and see that mugshot and and find out, you know, the nitty gritty, the gory details of the crime. But I feel like you can also look at my life and see see what God did with that. Well, and and the one thing I want you to know is about AA recovery interviews is I do anonymize everything. So if someone wants to see your mugshot or if somebody wants to see what you're doing now, they're going to have to get kind of creative to find to find the information. My feeling is, though, that people who know you and people who know Blaine and people who know the people who know you, they're the ones who are going to be listening. I, I don't expect that there are going to be very many non-alcoholics out there saying, oh, I think I'll listen to a podcast by alcoholics. Right, right. I'm grateful for that. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your story is that by the time this happened to you, you had already had years and years of drinking and were you a drug user as well or just drinking? Not really. Um, I dabbled a little bit with cocaine 20 years ago um, Mm -hmm. just because I could drink more. So you were primarily consuming alcohol. At what, what age did you did you start to drink? About 20, 21, college. So a little bit later on than some people. What was your family of origin like? I have an uncle who is in recovery and has been sober Uh for, I think, 30 years. But he went hard back in the day and um, went to treatment and went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, my parents uh, do not drink. My sister um, was raised in the same home I was. And she doesn't drink. Hmm. I just, I think it was, I think there was a genetic predisposition somehow. My, my dad is kind of a social drinker. He doesn't drink in the home now because I live in the home with them for one thing. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of just raging alcoholism that is called alcoholism anyway. Um, there's certainly aunts and uncles and cousins who like to party. But is that the reason why you, why you started when you were 20, 21? Were you in school at that time? And what were the circumstances under which you started drinking to begin with? Yeah, I went to Texas A&M and I was I was just painfully painfully shy and I really felt like I was just the most average person there was. I wasn't good at anything. I wasn't smart. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't popular. I wasn't good at sports. Hmm. Kind of a run-of-the-mill garden variety. I mean, we we hear this story a lot um in the rooms of AA, but 
I thought I was never going to have a boyfriend and no one was ever going to love me and mm-hmm. a lot of self-pity. And uh, my friends drank some and they passed it to me and I got drunk and it was just like, oh, I'm funny. I'm attractive. <laughs> I, I'm witty. I'm, you know, I had arrived. <laughs> so um, I think that was... I liked the way that I felt. I liked the way that people responded to me. I I drank pretty heavily throughout college, but I was surrounded by other people who did the same. Kind of leveled the playing field. Yeah, I didn't really know that was drinking alcoholically, you know. And and the book says, you know, that women progress really quickly, and I, that's that's absolutely my story. And the the times that I have stopped, I, I really have never been able to stop on my own. I've been in detox or treatment or jail or the hospital. I admire people who are able just to be like, enough is enough. You know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and that's great. But like, I needed a lot of tools and a lot of steps and a lot of um, help, you know? Yeah. When did you turn the corner from being a heavy drinker to being an alcoholic? Or when did you first acknowledge that you had a problem with alcohol? I think for many years, I just surrounded myself with people who partied. You know, I was a journalist. I worked for newspapers. Um, It was very common to have wine and champagne in the fridge and celebrate, you know, on election night or what, you know, Mm -hmm. you weren't shamed for that sort of thing. So it was just sort of part of the culture. Um, I think in my thirties when I was drinking by myself and then when I started drinking in the morning, just because, um, it felt like it gave me enough of a boost to, to get through the day. Mm-hmm. You know, when you take those little quizzes on the pamphlets or, you know, that say, might you be an alcoholic? Um, I met all those criteria and I would I would get drunk at night by myself and look at my phone and look for AA meetings and never go to them. But so I think I would say I knew in my 30s that I had a problem with alcohol, but it was it was always kind of like, well, I'll stop on Monday or I'll, you know, just get past this deadline or this event or this thing and then I'll quit, you know. Until dating Blaine, I had no real um, motivation, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the part of the book that talks about, you know, job or no job, wife or no wife, I, I think like there was no way I was going to get sober like for myself. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I loved this man and I, I wanted to impress him. I wanted him to see me taking action and and being the kind of person that that he wanted in his life and so i kept up that game for quite a while mm-hmm. and and that kept me sober for for a few months you know um well sometimes that's enough though i mean my wife letting me know that i could do whatever it was that i wanted to do she just wouldn't be there so you know kind of a veiled way of saying we're through if you don't do something right. and when you're faced with that kind of choice you do have to make a decision right uh, cuz i found that i got to the point where i could not talk myself out of it yet again so whenever i hear somebody say well i quit for somebody else we would tell somebody who does that well, just be careful now you know if you, you got to make sure you're quitting for yourself but sometimes other people and our relationship with them will prime the pump yeah. to get us to think about what it is what, that we really want. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it, it inspired me to be around and I went to meetings 
hoping that I would hear a speaker or hear a share or hear something that would inspire me and change me and give me that push. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. You know, I didn't enjoy that. I wasn't the kind of person who was saying like, I'm never going to quit. I was saying like, I'm good. I got this. But um, I understood the value of having a good program. I just, I couldn't do it on my own. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to stay stopped. Now, were you functional enough at that point that while you were drinking heavily in your 30s, uh, even though you, you attempted getting sober on a number of different occasions, were you functional enough to be able to keep your job and carry on with life such that you could say, well, I can't be an alcoholic because, I, because I've, still, I've still got a job or I've still, I've still got this or I haven't been arrested yet? What was that like for you? Yeah, I would have those bad nights where I would make poor decisions, you know, um, and and wake up with regret and a a bad headache and embarrassment. And, you know, when when phones started being able to text message, you know, I'm, I'm sure I sent some crazy text messages and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was just always kind of like, I'll do better. I'll get through this and maybe not drink. You know, you keep moving the goalpost. I'll I'll wait until after five to drink mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But yeah, I was functional. I've had some, I've been fortunate to have some really good jobs and to um, have some education, have some intelligence. And, but you know, an interesting thing is when I was at a treatment center in Houston, I was there for, I think something like 25 days this would have been in um, in about 2017, I think this was. I was in a, an elite group um, for professionals and educators. There were nurses in there. There were attorneys. There were the smart people. And I was really proud of, of being picked for this elite group, you know. And someone said to us, the reason we single y'all out is because you're you're the sickest you're the you're the most chronic relapsers and i'm telling you two-thirds of that group is dead now um most most by suicide so five to seven years later some of these people are just dead yes that's a wake-up call isn't it yeah yeah and i think it's because we think we can outsmart it Mm -hmm. we think i had a bad day And I screwed up and I totaled my car, but I've got a little bit of money in the bank and I can sweet talk this guy into taking me back. I can figure it out and I'll be okay. And I'm going to have another drink to to take off the edge so I don't have to worry about the tornado I caused last night, you know? And it's, it's that mentality of thinking you can outsmart this disease that really get you in trouble. And sometimes just the simplicity of saying, I can't do this anymore. I need help. Mm -hmm. And finding your way into a meeting and saying, so all I have to do is, is work these steps and I'll get better. And someone says, yep, that's all you have to do. And going, Mm -hmm. okay. And my mind didn't work that way. I was trying to figure out, how can I do this without wasting my Saturday sitting down with a sponsor? And how can I do this? I don't I don't want to write that inventory part. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to get my boyfriend to sponsor me or, you know, 
the shortcuts that we take so we don't have to do any work. So you're on parole until what year? 2025, you said? Correct. So looking forward to 2025, what does the sober April say to the alcoholic April about what's going to happen once you're off parole? What does the disease tell you and what does your recovery tell you? I think the disease tells me you have some more freedom. You can do without what you want. And and maybe you're all better now. Um, I think that truthfully, like it really, it really makes no difference whether you're on parole or not. Mm -hmm. If I want to drink right now, I can drink right now. I can't start my car, but I I don't want to live in a home where there's alcohol right now. You know, I don't want to have um, temptation of things like that because, because I am human and I do have moments where I just don't want to feel like this anymore. I do get resentful and um, get my feelings hurt and get angry and get upset. And I'm an alcoholic, so I, I don't want to be able to have a bottle within arm's reach. But but I think I, for me, when I stay pretty plugged into to some people who do it well and do it right, and I, I listen to their stories on your podcast, and I, I have pretty good fellowship, you know, and with the, with the friends I've made along the way, um, I stay connected to some of the women who are still in prison. I stay connected to some of the women who are out on parole like myself. And I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what life is going to look like when I'm off parole. I think that it's one day at a time and it's, um, you know, I, I get a daily reprieve based on my spiritual condition yeah. and I have to kind of reset that in the mornings. I'm, I'm really big, you know, with, with almost four years sober, I'm really big on on reading on awakening and doing a morning meditation and doing an I do a nightly review with my sponsor every night. Um, I text message it to her and that's fabulous. You know, I check myself. Was I dishonest? Was I selfish? Am I resentful? Do I owe an apology? Um, I do all those things and actually write them down. And I think that's important for me today. I don't know if I'll continue to do that a year from now, but I'm probably going to do it tonight. Yeah, and tonight's all you got because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. It's the same sort of thing. Right. You know what's interesting is when I was new in sobriety, I always thought, would I be able to get through the toughest of tough times without drinking? And early on, I thought, there's no way. There's no way. I, I'll stay sober until I actually have to drink. And the only reason I'll have to drink is because I lost this or something else happened of a catastrophic nature. And okay, at that point, I'll be okay to drink. So there was still drinking in my future in my head. I'm wondering what degree of certainty do you feel deep down inside right now about your own sobriety when it comes to some of those major, you've already had a major, major catastrophic thing happen in your life, but I'm wondering to what degree do you feel confident that your higher power is going to have you covered at that point? I think pretty, pretty high percentage. Like I feel like I've been through a lot mm -hmm. and, and God God was right there with me mm. and um I I pray when I when I make a road trip now mm -hmm. I um I had to drive in the dark from um oh, about 30 minutes away um to get home last night and I I tell my story at other other meetings in in locations mm -hmm. where I don't really um and I'm 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 very uncomfortable uh, on the road at night in the dark on little two-lane roads and 
and I just pray for God to keep me safe. And, and I feel really, really confident that, um, that God get, gets us through these things that we're afraid of and that it's important to, to push through and do things sometimes that, that you're afraid of, yeah. because otherwise, you know, I'd just sit in my house all day long and I'd, I'd miss out on all these great opportunities. And yeah, I don't, I don't know that the worst of, um, I think that, that tragedy occurs in sobriety and, and tough things happen and people die and people relapse and people, um, let you down. Good things happen too. And people drink, right? They get super successful. They married the right person. Uh, all of their problems seem to go away in an instant over one or two occurrences in their life. And then they drink. Have you known some people like that? Yes. Yes. So I, I don't feel in danger of either one of those things right now, as far as like, if something great happens, I'm probably, and, and there is a little bit of healthy fear that sort of propels you to, um, you know, I don't, I don't make illegal U-turns cause I just, I don't want to get pulled over. I don't want to go back to prison. I don't want, you know, so some of, some of the acting right just comes out of fear, but also like, I believe pretty strongly, um, that that a drink's not going to make anything better. What's the point? Yeah, what's the point? Well, I think the point is right now, with regard to this interview, that I've really been touched by your story in a big way. And hearing you lay everything out like you did, the bad, the horrible, the good, talked all, you've talked all over the scale. And people need to hear that from one person to know that it isn't just a certain type of person who experiences this thing. Sometimes people experience it no matter what. The fact that you've been able to get through it and stay sober, I think is absolutely exceptional for an alcoholic because we we as alcoholics are not supposed to be able to do that. But obviously you've done it. Um, I've enjoyed listening to your story. I honor your sobriety and your willingness to be of service by telling your story out there. My hope is that this, this particular interview in, on this podcast will be helpful to people and let's let's face it sometimes people have to hear the really raw edged stories to really get the idea of what this whole thing about sobriety is so i want to thank you for for bringing your story to me today and letting me allowing me into your life by letting me get to know you better uh the times that we've met i've always enjoyed it i love you and i want to make sure that um, that we stay in touch. Absolutely. Well, I will see you soon. I hope I'm coming to Houston for a, a World Series game pretty soon. So I hope you are too, April. Thanks a lot for doing this. We'll see you hopefully soon. Okay. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, April T., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. 
If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.